The High Red Marketer podcast is sponsored by the Zemi app, enabling colleges and universities to engage interested students before they even apply. You're listening to The Higher Ed Marketer, a podcast geared towards marketing professionals in higher education. This show will tackle all sorts of questions related to student recruitment, donor relations, marketing trends, new technologies, and so much more. If you're looking for conversations centered around where the industry is going, this podcast is for you. Let's get into the show. Welcome to the Higher Ed Marketer Podcast. Today, Bart and I speak to PJ Wenzel and Marty Gray from Ring Digital, and they're going to help us explain to our listeners the changes that are coming in the ways that we can execute lead generation. Yeah, Troy, I think there's so much uh, so much attention going on. I've seen so many clients, especially since the pandemic, really leaning into pay-per-click campaigns, whether it's Google and search and display or meta with Facebook and Instagram and, and other ones. Those are really good tools. Um, the, the, the playing field is going to change real soon because Google is doing away with some cookie-based um, metrics and the way that they're tracking people with cookies. And so that's going to really change a lot of the ways that we're actually doing pay-per-click. And um, I really like the guys at Ring because they've, they've kind of approached it from a different standpoint, from a behavioral standpoint of actually understanding those devices that we carry and, and knowing you know the location that we're at and, and what we're what our spending habits are and, and actually how we behave and how that might be a better predictor of, of a lead for institutions. And so this is a great conversation. I would really encourage you to kind of listen and take some notes. Yeah, we really appreciate PJ and Marty for helping us get this out to our listeners. Let's get to that conversation. As we approach all the important information with PJ and Marty, I do want to ask one of you, to tell us if there's anything that you've learned this week that's unique or interesting that you can share. Yeah, the very important uh, information that I have to share with you, Troy, is that when I don't eat thousands of calories of carbs every week, I feel really good. I'm on pole 30. <laughs> and I'm like, I've never uh, thought so clearly for my clients ever before. Thank you. I know Whole30 <laughs> is a big thing for a lot of people, and they've had great success. And by the way, everyone, that was PJ. Both PJ and Marty are from Ring Digital, and they're going to share some of their wisdom and things that they offer their clients through Ring Digital. And Marty, if you would, if you can kind of introduce us to you and PJ and Ring Digital. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. So much, Troy. This is great. So PJ is our uh, president and co-founder, fearless leader of Ring Digital. And um, I'm, I'm a guy who uh, PJ sought out to say, uh, hey, I've got this, this idea on how to bring truth, transparency, and accuracy to the digital space. And I would like some help um, educating and, uh, and like PJ said, thinking clearly for his clients. So I've been guilty of the whole 30 a time or two myself. Thank you. And Ring Digital, tell us a little bit about what you do. Yeah, absolutely. PJ, you, were you going to yeah. take that? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, so Ring, um, Ring was founded in 2014, and um, we really got um, heavily into the digital space a couple of years after that. And primarily what we do 
is helping connect our clients better with their target audience. Um, we had clients who were really frustrated, um, to put it lightly, that they didn't know who they were advertising to, were really unsure about the attribution models that they were getting, and um, and just to put it very, very frankly, they didn't know if the ads they were buying were getting in front of the right people, and they didn't really know how to tell if they were. And um, so Ring uh, takes an approach that is, we think, rather unique, uh, and we, we really focus on connecting our, our clients with their target audience in a way that can be measured and that they know going in ahead of time who exactly they're targeting. Um, like literally the, the names, the addresses, and all the information that they need to know about their target audience, we can actually tell them who they are. Um, in many cases, um, we can tell them a lot more. And uh, often our clients in the higher ed space, we're going to get into this, I'm sure, a little bit. Um, they've got their own data. And so we're helping them use that data in a more effective way. So that's what Ring is all about. It's about you know leveraging the power of digital, uh, we think, in, the next, in a next-gen sort of connective way. Thank you, PJ. And both Bart and I wanted to have you on the podcast to help us explain and demonstrate to our listeners the difference between behavioral lead generation models and cookie lead generation models and uh, which one is better, which one's in the future, and that's something that your company has experience with. So we were hoping to educate everyone today on the difference and where we see the industry, especially for higher ed clients going forward. So mm. if you would, one of you, kind of explain the difference between the two. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, on your last podcast, I, I was listening to you guys uh, talk to Jay Bear. And one of the things that you guys talked about was the need for universities to be collecting more and more of their own proprietary data. The question is, uh, what to do with said data? What do I do with this? And uh, uh, so leave that there for a moment. Uh, the importance of that will become clear soon. In the past, uh, in, for the last, I mean, geez, 10, 12 more years uh, than that, the programmatic digital space, so digital ads, although they're through um, you know, Google's ad network or other ad networks, have all been based on a type of behavioral targeting, um, which is foundationally based on the cookie. Uh, so there, you know, when we talk about behavioral ad targeting, um, there's a couple ways to think of it. But online, uh, you know, behaviorally online-based uh, targeting, you know, behavioral online targeting. So how do people behave online? And that is what cookies have been used to track and, and basically store that information. Um, however, with the rise of automation, and uh, more and more bot traffic uh, and less and more demand, frankly, for transparency, that model has stopped working. Google has recognized that, and that's why they have started working on um, everything. You know, you, the, 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 flo the flock flop, so to speak, uh, we've heard about, and then this, this cookie shelf or the cookie cliff, as they call it. You know, cookies are going away. This model of, of targeting um, from an online behavioral standpoint currently is going away. Um, so the question is, how do we, how do we target? And that's where the university's uh, data comes in and, and frankly, other hard data stamp uh, sources. 
what, you know, instead of gathering uh, online behavioral data uh, from cookies batched into segments by big companies like Oracle or Blue Kai, um, you know, who are, you know, selling that data to Google and others, uh, instead of those cookie segments um, being used, what's going to be used, uh, we think, and we think the more elegant use is simply to use uh, proprietary hard offline data and match that to um, hardware specs. Uh, so let's say it's a device ID targeting or some other real uh, live uh, device type identifier uh, that connects the user, the, the target, uh, with the data that the university has. Uh, because in a lot of cases, that data is really good. And um, I'll, take a, I'll take a step back there and to say also that the reason why Ring started down that road, and this is because, because that's how we target it, is more to do with the impact that we saw from offline-based data. And that is to say, um, and this is not universally true, so don't push me all the way through on this, uh, because you know, online behavioral stuff, is it's powerful too. But if I go online to Men's Health uh, or to you know MSNBC or whatever, it doesn't necessarily mean, like, it doesn't say as much about me as if I were to go into Dick's Sporting Goods and purchase something. So in other words, what we do with our bodies in the physical world and what we do with our money in the, in the world, whether it's online or in the physical world, what we do with our money and our time in the real world has a more significant impact than what, we, what website we happen to click onto or scroll down. And because that is true inherently, uh, we need to be able to market to people based on that behavior, that real world behavior, if we really want to have an impact. And so that's where we start from. And, and so I, I hope that's a little bit of a, uh, an answer to, to what you're getting at. That's really good, PJ. And let me just kind of get my head wrapped around this because, I mean, <clears throat> you know, I, I don't think I'm atypical. I carry my phone pretty much everywhere I go. My phone is a piece of hardware that, if I recall, it's like got a MAC address or some weird name like that, that is unique only to that phone. And what you're telling me is that, I, that my my data is connected to that that piece of hardware, whether I'm sitting in a parking lot or I just drove through campus and I'm with my kids on vacation and we decided to swing over and just kind of do a quick walk through campus, but nobody knows that we're there. I can be, you can, you can identify that because I'm part of your database or maybe you bought a name and you can say, okay, this address, my home address, and I'm connected, my home address is connected to these pieces of hardware. All of a sudden now Bingo. you can start to understand my behavior based on my, my hardware. But not only that, but another thing you said was that my spending. So the fact that I'm spending everything with my, with my Visa or my MasterCard I can also, that's right. another piece of hardware, if you will, that can be tracked and, and, and that behavior shows up. Is that correct? Yep. And, and yeah, that's right. So the, the things that we do in the real world have been sold to companies like Visa, Amex, you know, all the banks, all the travel websites, all of these folks. We have, we have long since made the trade off 
that we are okay with people selling our data as long as we get a, a really good service. And often it's a free service. I mean, that's the entire backbone of Facebook, right? Um, so, you know, the, that theory. But we've had that theory working in operation in our society for decades now. And that's how the banks and credit card companies make money and uh, in, in another way. Uh, so that data is all, it's always been available. You know, the direct mail companies have had it and many other people have had it, but it's, it's not been utilized very well by digital marketers. And frankly, um, it's, you know, the, the location-based services that you're talking about, that, that's part of the key. And so it's not, just, and it's not even just the Mac ID. I mean, there, people don't realize there are many identifiers on your phone. And uh, when you travel somewhere, uh, the location there is going to be an, an app that allows uh, for tracking of your location and that app will provide that and and it will be in the bidstream and that stuff will be pulled down and yeah that's super creepy uh, but I'll just say this people you know on one hand they want their privacy and that's a good thing but on the other hand they want ads that are pertinent to them they don't want ads that are superfluous uh, I love getting an ad for instance, that is going to show me a new, uh, you know, gadget or something that I might be interested in. I want ads that are targeted for me. I don't, you know, and that's, and that's why I think it's going to be extraordinarily important, um, you know, for our clients and for others to realize the power of, of, you know, that offline data. And it's just connecting everything in a different way. So it's all this data has always been available and it's getting better and better. Uh, but it's a matter of connecting it in a new way, if that makes sense. We talk a lot about it on the show. Schools are really struggling today to make the same ad spend work. CPMs are up 89% year over year on Facebook and Instagram. Our college clients are no longer looking for rented audiences. They're looking for an own community where they can engage students even before they apply. This is why Zemi has become so crucial for our clients. With over 1 million students, close to 10,000 five-star ratings, consistently ranked as one of the top social apps, and recently, one of Apple's hot apps of the week, there simply isn't anything out there like it, and we have seen it all. Zemi not only provides the best space for student engagement, but the most unique and actionable data for their 160 college and university partners. We know firsthand from our clients that Zemi is a must-have strategy for Gen Z. Check them out now at colleges.zemi.com. That's colleges.zeemee.com. And yes, tell them Bart and Troy sent you. Yeah, that does. And, and so that really starts to open up a whole lot of different things because, I mean, I, and, and I guess I'm curious, too, that like your example of going to men's health versus, you know, walking into Dick's Sporting Goods and buying something, um, I have to guess that there's some inaccuracies in the data that we're relying on from this, this cookie or, you know, I, I've got a ton of clients that, you know, are ponying up you know, a couple, you know, $500,000 a month to, to, uh, to do, you mm -hmm. know, Facebook ads or Google ads. And, and, you know, I've seen it work very well with bigger budgets, but, you know, at smaller budgets, mm -hmm. it almost feels like, you know, you're going to Vegas and just doing a little bit of a, a crapshoot. Um, help me understand yeah. a little bit about how all that changes, because I mean, if there's inaccurate data out there, you know, there's a lot of things that, that are coming in the net that aren't worth anything. That's right. And big companies are able to, to do that because of the scale. They're able to scale. But I mean, if you're a mid-sized business and you're spending 
maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars uh, a year or a university uh, that maybe is spending, um, you know, a million dollars on digital every year uh, or a half a million. You don't have the luxury uh, to be able to cast that wide of a net. Uh, and frankly, nobody should want to do that. Nobody should want to waste money. The reason why it's become more and more inaccurate is just having to do with the way that technology has evolved. And so those cookies, it's all built on the back of a technology that was never meant to hold this uh, kind of marketing. And so one way to check, and you can check your cookie footprint, so to speak, you can go to Oracle and request, um, request that. So it, you would be shocked. Uh, you know, I didn't know that I was also a woman. I didn't know that I was in five age categories. I thought I was a young guy, uh, but apparently I'm also 65 and older. I mean, they've got me in every age category, um, and they've got me in both female, male. They've got me with interests that I could care less about. I didn't know I took up fishing, you know, like all these different things. And so don't forget, PJ, you live in six different states. I know. I know. I'm very affluent. Um, <laughs> so, so, like, these are the kinds of things, though, that when we started looking into this, like, it, 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 but again, for a mid-sized business and a small business, especially, um, you know, when you're targeting your ads this way, you just, you don't have the scalability that, you know, an IBM or Dick's Sporting Goods, to use the example. I mean, you don't have $35 million to, to throw into this because for them, like, you got to remember it's not just about the sale, the straight sales conversion for them. It's a branding play and they're totally willing to brand to everybody. Same thing with pay-per-click. If you think about this, the idea is, is not just about, um, it's not just about, you know, targeting a certain segment, uh, with that. You're really casting a wide net because even if you did get a non-bot, right, Bart, that would, that would, uh, click through, even if it's a real person, how do you know? I mean, the minute, how do you know they're part of your target, target audience? Um, the minute you want to do any kind of uh, targeting, you want to bring targeting into the picture, even with pay-per-click, right then you are, you are layering on the same uh, cookie uh, back, uh, backbone. And so you're still relying on that. And, and that's a problem. I mean, so that, that's what we're trying to kind of just educate people about and say like, this might've been a, an elegant solution. And it is a really cool solution. If you think about how the cookie model came together, uh, maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago, a long time. It's, it's boy, time is flying, but now it's just with the rise of automation and so many other, um, so many other issues with the data, uh, it's, it's just become less effective. And we don't think that universities right. can really afford to be that, that ineffective with such a competitive atmosphere. PJ, and Marty, so is it accurate when I say that the pay-per-click or the cookie-based model would be described as a real-life targeting model versus where we would like to go or what might be a little more effective as the behavioral model? Well, um, right now, industry speak is a little, um, it's a little fluid. So for instance, if you specify that, and which is why I think asking good questions is so important. When people say behavioral, mm -hmm. some we've encountered behavioral as people think of it as online. They they believe online behavioral based targeting, like they're thinking online behavioral. So that's why we have to ask, like, well, what kind of behavioral 
targeting are you talking about? Mm. And so you've just phrased it in a way that I, you know, we don't encounter as much, but is probably actually more how it should be phrased. Uh, but yeah, behavioral targeting, that's why you have to get, you're like, well, do you mean uh, like based on purchase history or credit score or, you know, something that people like real data points? Or are you talking about online behavioral, like based on the websites that people have visited? And that, those are the kinds of questions you have to get down to. Thank you, PJ. So keeping in mind that we're talking to higher ed marketers, if you can kind of guide us in the conversation to what are you recommending us to go to? Yeah, absolutely. This is Marty. Sorry, PJ, are you going to say something? I can. No, no, go for good? it. All right. Well, this is where, uh, this is the part that I absolutely love is to take these concepts and these ideas that, uh, and bring them to reality for folks. And so, you know, there's always going to be new technology out there. Um, one of the things that we're doing is, uh, um, is both uh, creepy but a lot of fun. Whenever we're talking with people and they say to us, wow, this is really effective as a consumer um, or really effective as a marketer but kind of creepy as a consumer, uh, we know that they've got the concept down. Um, and so what I mean by that is some of the new stuff that we're doing is uh, automatic content recognition or, uh, or for short, ACR. And that is just simply put that if you are watching something on your smart TV in your home, and let's say you're a university and you're buying ad space on that, uh, on that TV uh, through the digital means, you see someone get served with a University A ad. Well, let's say you're University B. We can actually see what content is being displayed on that TV screen, that smart TV screen in that home, and then almost like 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 race car, you can uh, NASCAR, you can draft, and you could then a day later or two serve an ad for your university because you just saw that that ad was served for University A. So pretty powerful stuff. But what is really exciting goes back to this this real world data that PJ was talking about. When that is the foundational starting. Point and the, the foundational building block of what you're doing, the real world behavior, we put that data to work and then we're able to, the gold standard for us is the matchback or just the comparison of spreadsheet A is your list of targets and spreadsheet B is now your list of enrolled students in your institution. So here's an example of that. Uh, we had a, a top five SEC school uh, come to us and you know, they, this won't come as a surprise to a lot who are listening to in on this, and that is that they spend thousands of dollars every single year on research. And that research is, who are my underserved markets? Who are the people that we need to be reaching out to? How do we get, and then naturally you're left with those questions, how do we get in front of those people? So this school specifically, as we were talking with them, they came across um, an underserved uh, uh, universe, as we like to call them, of students, which was low-income gap schools for Pell Grants. And so what they had was a list of 20,000 people that, that were on their Pell Grant list target list. And so what we did was, along with their direct mail, along with their search engine 
optimization, their pay-per-click, their, their uh, billboards, TV, radio. We injected this into the sum of all of their marketing parts. And so what we did was um, bring to the attention of these first-generation students who thought that they may not be able to attend the university, that there was a spot for them. And in fact, the university wanted them to come to them specifically. So what we ended up doing was taking that same list and serving uh, digital display and non-skippable pre-roll video ads in browsers and apps directly into the devices within those same households that were on that literal Excel spreadsheet list. And then um, we, we uh, narrowed that down to 3,500 students who raised their hand and filled out an application. So we narrowed down 20,000 applicants or possible applicants to 3,500 students. And here's what we then found is we then took that list of 3,500 students and started targeting them with different messaging. Now that you have interest, your real world behavior is I'm interested in your university. And now we're going to continue to tweak that message and narrow it down and get to you specifically. So at the end of the campaign, when we compared the two spreadsheets, it was who did we target? Because we predetermined that and we know that. Just like direct mail, we love to say all the time, this is like direct mail only for digital. And so what we do is uh, we found that of the 3,500 students um, that enrolled, uh, uh, 3,000 we targeted, little over 3,000 we targeted, and as a control group, we left off a little over 400 to target um, with only their direct mail and other means, but we left digital out. For those folks that received the injection of our digital marketing, 51% uh, of those 3,000 students are now enrolled in the institution compared to only 25% of students are enrolled who did not receive our digital marketing. So the conversion on that lift yield is, as you know, every, this is on the mind of every admissions and enrollment person in any institution. How do I lift the number of applicants and then how do I yield or keep the most amount of those possible as they move through their enrollment matriculation process? So you know, 51% to 25%, having a 26% lift or a 2.26x increase in their conversion is, is staggering, especially when we know that these universities need to be so careful with their dollars. And a lot of times, you know, these are public dollars and you need to be able to account for every dollar, every dime, every penny that's spent on these on these campaigns. So let me let me just kind of tease that out a little bit, Marty, because I mean, you're, you're talking about some, you know, large SEC school and, and, you know, university type schools. I know for a fact that just about every school, I mean, when, when you start even looking at schools that are, you know, a thousand and above matric matriculation of student population, there, you know, everybody does student search and people have been doing student search for decades where, you know, it used to be the fact that you'd go and buy the ACT test registration list or the SAT test registration list. And, and you know, you can still do that. There's other, there's other places out there now that are offering uh, similar uh, lists that you can purchase, whether it's niche or, or, um, or uh, you know, 
there's a ton of them. But the point is, is that, you know, people are investing anywhere between, you know, I don't know how much money, but they're buying 500, you know, 50,000 names or 100,000 names, seniors, juniors, sophomores, and they're typically going through a traditional, you know, we're going to send them email, we're going to send them texts, we're going to send them postcards, we're going to try to generate some leads out of that. But what I hear you saying is that if I have a list and I have an address, that is my key to be able to then start to inject this digital elements that you're, that you're talking about. So rather than relying on hoping that my prospective student is going to open their email or, or you know, hoping that they're going to you know, look at the direct mail, which is effective, you're telling me that I can also upload the, this, these lists to a, a tool like what you guys do and then start injecting ads into the household as part of that campaign. 100%. Yes. And that's going to get the quickest return because that's the lift yield nurture part of this. Um, so you're 100% spot on. And then uh, PJ mentioned the data aspect of this is, you know, a lot of institutions that we're talking with, both large and smaller institutions, a lot of folks, it used to be a requirement to have your ACT and SAT score. Uh, so they would buy those lists specifically. Well, a lot of institutions have, have dropped that because they see it as a barrier to entry for the student. And so because, you know, the, all this data that PJ was mentioning, you know, we have, this goes back to the creepy part, like there's up to a thousand different data points in our dictionaries of, the, of, of identifiers of who people are, household income, um, you know, uh, credit score, um, you know, what type of gas do you put in your car? I should probably stop before people like get so creeped out that they click end on this thing. Um, but, uh, you know, it's so we can really do both. The quickest return, however, that higher education is going to receive through through a partnership um, in doing something like this is is through their lift yield lists, because we, we all know this, right? It's It's easier to to have a conversation with someone or to start a conversation or continue with someone who's interested versus someone who is off the radar, may not know you or trust the institution or the brand just yet. And so uh, to your point, you know, we have, we have, you know, smaller university relationships where they've, they've purchased 90,000 plus names and they're excited to put that data to work and you can you can bifurcate those lists you can you can sparse them out and say to the sophomores that we want to start having a a conversation with let's send them drip campaigns of you know just you know less frequent contact but we're still getting in front of them and then the juniors you intensify that a little bit and the seniors you really ramp that up and so you can do both. So to answer your question, you really can do both with the nurturing and also the prospecting. But the nurture is absolutely where you're going to have the quickest return because folks are already interested in having a conversation. There's an interesting thing that happens too uh, in the mark in the digital marketing world with when it comes to lists. Um, to just to to clarify, it's not that traditional digital agencies haven't been able to take lists and use lists before. Um, but there is, uh, so if you were to talk to an agency, can you take this SAT list? Can you take this intenders list? Can you take this field list? They'll say yes. Uh, 
but it's what do you do with that list? And so there's a difference between, for instance, this, this new way of approaching digital advertising that uh, Marty just described for one of our universities. There's a difference between that and what traditionally folks have done with lists. Because in the past, they might inject that list. They might uh, take that. But what they will do is they'll take it to somewhere like a live ramp, which still is using a cookie-based model. But what they'll do is they'll take that list of hard names, addresses, and they will model on top of that cookie segments. So they'll say, we want to match these names and addresses to profiles based on online behavioral data that, let's say, an Oracle or someone else has. So what you're doing is you're taking really good data and you're, you're, you're adding a, a level of uncertainty and really, at this point in the game, bad targeting, you know? Uh, right. you remember Caddyshack bad caddying, uh, like <laughs> you're adding some bad caddying into it. Um, so this, this is, this is, um, it's just something for, you know, if you're a marketer and you're a marketing director and you're like, hello, my agency, I'll ask my agency if they can do this, ask them like, well, where are you taking that data? How are you going to approach this, uh, with this data? Because that's a really telling thing. If they're just going to like upload it to live ramp or somewhere else, then essentially all it's all wasted. It's it, that you're, you're back to square one, essentially. Okay. So just one thing I want to kind of clarify a little bit, Marty, that on what you said. You said you talked about these you know, hundreds and thousands of data points. One thing that kind of went away, um, and I've got a lot of people that are listening on this, this show that are going to be faith-based institutions, and up until about three or four years ago, part of the ACT, SAT, you know, pre you know, test questionnaire was about your, um, your religious affiliation and your denomination. A lot of kids didn't understand that. A lot of kids didn't know what the, to put in, but it was some data that they could say, I want to be able to buy a list of, you know, students who are part of the Baptist church or part of the Presbyterian church or whatever that is. That's went away. And so there's, there's a, there's a blind spot now and there's, there's places that they can go and get that and, and things like that. Does your data provide you, does, does your, um, do the tools provide the, with the big data? I mean, if, we, if we're getting down into, you know, the, the details of credit scores and things like that, I'm sure there's some ways to be able to identify or affiliate some kind of religious activity as well. Is that true? That is 100% true. Yes. Yeah. So in the data, um, you know, we've, you know, even been asked to do that before and have executed it. So it's absolutely in the data. Okay. Because that brings me to my next question is that now all of a sudden, if I bought this list, you know, and I've got a hundred thousand names, it seems to me like I can give that list to someone like yourselves or, or somebody that does the work that you do, be able to then come back and say, okay, I want you to take this list and I want you to identify those people that have these key elements that I want. I want to have, you know, this kind of, uh, income, household income, because I, I do I do want my first gen students and my Pell Grant students, but I also kind of want full paced you know students that that I can kind of you know make it make some net revenue on for my university. I want to identify you know that I want to identify some religious um, affiliation and, and understand their that 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 household does have that as a part of their lifestyle. And, and then I want to be able to then take that 100,000 list, and now I'm down to, let's say, 25,000. Now I want to do something with that 25,000, even if it's a brand awareness campaign, before they get into my, you know, my, my yield campaign that I'm going to do after they get accepted. 
is that a possibility too that I'm starting to serve brand awareness ads, you know, in on Hulu and things like that to those households? Yeah, absolutely. The the awareness factor is also, like you said, very important. And when it comes to the TV, there are lots of different ways um, to get in front of people. But it it goes to what PJ said before. Anytime you take that list, uh, I like to think of it as um, there's that that list is powerful because that list is direct. It normally has a first name, a last name, physical street address, city, state, zip, you know, enter phone number, whether it's, you know, your mobile phone or your second mobile phone, um, you know, and a whole host of other things. And when, like PJ said, when you are taking that list and you're uploading it to a live ramp, for example, you're, you're immediately diluting the power and the directness of, of that data. And so what this does is then is then say whether you're a large school or you're a small school like there's to your in-state out out of state point or question um, it's really interesting there was a, a Midwest University and they actually gave us three lists and those three lists they their their priority list was number two and priority list number two was uh, was out-of-state students trying to get them to come to the university. And so we did advertising for 75 days. And um, when we advertised for 75 days, list, they had 39 students enroll from all three lists. But 33 of the 39 students, those were students from list number two that were out-of-state students. So you can, just like you said, do you want to bring awareness to your in-state students, to your out-of-state students, to your stop-out students, to your Pell Grant students, what it, transfer students? There's a ton of cool things that you can do, especially when it comes to transfer students. And uh, I think the other thing to keep in mind here is, especially when it comes to the to the TV. And honestly, guys, like TV is probably a whole nother segment in and of itself. Right. Um, so I won't I won't delve into that too much here, but being able to actually not target an area by a by a demographic or a, DMA, or a, yeah. a media, yeah. So being able to actually go into the household and target on someone's TV based off of the list of that starting point gives supreme confidence. In, in the directness of whether it is branding or it is specifically for the purpose of, um, of enrollment. That's awesome. Thank you, Marty. And just listening to you, and unfortunately, we're going to have to bring our show to a close, but you just opened up another chapter that I'm sure that we could talk about for 15 or 20 minutes. And in a few minutes, I want to give you an opportunity to share your contact information for those who would be interested in that next chapter. But we love to end our episodes of the podcast by asking if there's a piece of advice dealing with what we've discussed today that you could give a higher ed marketer that they could implement easily and quickly. Yeah, I would, the advice, what I would, would that be? Two, two pieces of advice. Um, the first one would be, PJ alluded to this earlier, but ask good questions. When you turn over a list, 
do you even, whether you're turning, so if it's your list, um, what are you doing with that list? What are you doing with that data? How are you using that list and data? Um, if it's not your list or it's not your data and you are using it, do you own it? Are you leasing it? Like what is, what is happening when you, you hand over any of your information or when you do so-called buy something from another organization in terms of data? Do you own it and those kinds of things? But ask good questions. And, you, you know, most, most of the folks that, that we uh, come, you know, come up against is probably the, the wrong phrasing, but um, a lot of the folks, like, they're, you know, they're, they're open to describing what they do and how they do it. So have that conversation and, um, and look for ways that you can fill gaps. Um, as far as the advice that I would give, when it comes to all of the lists that people have in any institution, their low-hanging fruit, so to speak, is going to be their lift yield list. Those who know the university, have some trust in the institution, those are the people, especially because there are, there are fewer students and therefore more institutions going after those fewer students, injecting this into a lift yield campaign, that would be my advice, is how, how they can use this to instantly see the return to, to help uh, set their, um, their enrollment in motion in a predictable and demonstrable way. Marty, thank you very much for that. Both you and PJ have given us and our listeners a lot to think about and I think a lot to follow up on. With that in mind, would you both offer contact information for those listeners who would like to reach out to learn more about this topic or maybe some of the yeah, absolutely pj you want to go first i'm office. just going to offer your information <laughs> <laughs> okay so so here's what going back to the beginning of the show here what i've learned is if you want more to do call pj because Every time I have a conversation with this guy, I find myself with more to do than when I called than before I called him. So, with that in mind, uh, sure, yeah. My um, email address is Marty M A R T Y at ring dot digital R I N G dot digital, and it's it, it. There's no dot com. We get asked that all the time. It's just Marty at ring.digital. And the same thing is true for our website. If you check out ring.digital um, and then uh, forward slash uh, higher education, um, that is another great way to uh, just to check out how we've done some some pretty neat things in the higher ed space. So, and, and really, we, we love to educate. That's the most important thing. We love to educate and we love to see people succeed. And as long as those two things are happening, then, you know, the world's, the world's a better place. Thank you, Marty. Also, PJ, thank you for helping us get this message out and hopefully broadening some minds and giving marketers something else to think about and letting them know what's in store for them in the future. Yeah, there's so many Mark, really good things on this episode, and I would encourage you, like you to go back and listen to some of it. And, and you might even want to go back and listen to a few other episodes. I remember Roosevelt Smith talked about big data on an episode a few uh, few months ago. Uh, Jay Bear, as PJ referenced earlier, 
Um, we talked about that, I think, on episode 69. And I think that there's also a really good um, discussion in, in some of this with, uh, with University of Illinois as well. And so take a look at those and listen to those episodes. But I think the thing I want everybody to walk away with and think about is that what you've known as kind of the gold standard with the cookie-based type of ways of, of you know, lead generation and generating you know, PPC ads, that's going to change. Uh, whether we like it or not, Google's policy of cookie is going to is going to really change things uh, in the summer of F twenty three, and so we've got to really be ready and we've got to start looking. And I think PJ's comment about you know asking the questions and and really starting to educate yourself is is a really good way to look at that. And then also kind of open your mind to, I mean, I, I spend my wife and I are kind of addicted to a couple um, Hulu episodes, you know, Hulu shows, and then we watch a Canadian uh, serial show called The Murdoch Mysteries and. And uh, it, they run ads during that. And I know that those ads are targeted to my home. I can tell that when I watch the ads. Um, but I think there's a lot of creative things going on on over-the-top television with the streaming devices. And I think there's also creative things going on within our home that are being targeted to our IP and to our, to our um, different devices. And so just start to take, a, take, um, take a, a break and look at that and start to observe how you're being marketed to as a consumer and then kind of flip that around and say, how can I do that for my, for my institution? And so I think this has been a great conversation. Thank you, PJ. Thank you, Marty. Yeah, thank and you guys. Uh, appreciate it a lot. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you guys. The higher ed marketer podcast is sponsored by Kaler solutions an education marketing and branding agency. And by ThinkPack. <laughs> Don, I almost made it through 29, the whole 27. thing without a mistake. What's the timestamp, Bart? Thank you. I'm going to start that again. The Higher Ed Marketer Podcast is sponsored by Kaler Solutions, an education marketing and branding agency, and by Think Patented, a marketing execution, printing, and mailing provider of higher ed solutions. On behalf of my co-host, Bart Kaler, I'm Troy Singer. Thanks again for joining us. You've been listening to The Higher Ed Marketer. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening with Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to leave a quick rating of the show. Simply tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves. Until next time.